tuned to HybridPod, a show that presents conversations of critical digital pedagogy, listening for ways to empower students and champion learning. It's the aural side of hybrid pedagogy, a digital journal of learning, teaching, and technology. I'm Chris Friend from St. Leo University. In this episode, I talk with Janine DeBase. I'm Janine DeBase. I teach writing and literature at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry, and that's in Syracuse, New York. About her broad-scale approach to teaching. I wanted to have this conversation because of an article Janine wrote for Hybrid Pedagogy back in April 2014, and an attempt at collaboration we had a few semesters ago. We'll talk more about each of those later on. But to start us off, I want to talk about our expectations of our students and what we think they are and should be capable of. There's been a good deal of chatter online recently about the musings of one Ron Sprigley, who seems to make it a point at every turn to complain to the world about how stupid he thinks his students are. Which is odd, because shouldn't he, a professor confident in his intelligence, consider that a source of job security and therefore a good thing? But I digress. The trouble is that Strigley's complaints are based on the premise that knowledge is held by the few to be distributed to the masses fortunate enough to take in that knowledge from their teachers. Students are empty vessels, the thinking goes, awaiting pearls of wisdom to be graciously handed down from above. But I can say, as one who has spent a good deal of time in classrooms, both as a student and a teacher, I've never met a teacher who knew more than a room full of students. Just ask the students. They'll be able to tell you what the teacher doesn't know. The wealth of knowledge and experience that constitutes every classroom, thanks to what students bring with them, amazes me. All we have to do is listen for it. Here's Janine. That last thing you said, it's a really important sort of foundation of my whole teaching philosophy and that is that all of my students are smart and they're they're smart and they're amazing students and they might have a different base of knowledge because they come from different backgrounds they have different experiences they're way younger than I am um, but that doesn't mean they're not smart and that they're not capable of contributing something to the classroom community I, I think that is such an important thing in the classroom is to acknowledge that mm -hmm. and and I, I think i feel that way about my students and i think they know that i feel that about them and so because of that they are eager to contribute to whatever is going on in the classroom so i think it's that's really foundational to like anything that i teach so i want to be a bit of a devil's advocate here and push back um what if you were talking to a teacher who believes that the class is all about the content and all about the thing that that teacher is an expert in and, and they're like, but the students don't know this field, so what does their knowledge have to do with my class? Because my class is all about X, and their knowledge is all about Y, and how does that, how does that benefit the classroom, I guess? Right, but that teacher has to assume that those students are capable of learning that knowledge, that they have, they have ways of looking at patterns, for example, and figuring them out, right? Like, I could take a course in something completely that I know nothing about, but I'm good at learning. Like I know how to stop and say, okay, like here are the, here are the overall concepts that we're supposed to be learning. Let me get those concepts or here are the details I need to know. So it doesn't matter that I might not know anything about X, but I know how to learn about X. And I, and I think that's kind of what we're teaching our students. And we have to assume that, yes, they're all capable of learning this. They're not, I, I really hate it when, when, you know, when teachers, you know, call their students stupid or lazy or like any of those sort of negative terms, because that is not my experience. Mm -hmm. That if you treat students like smart, capable people, then that's how they act. 
uh, the, you mentioned lazy, and that brought to mind uh, the word motivated. And I, I often hear teachers complaining that their students lack motivation and that they're not interested in what's going on, that sort of thing. But that, that to me sounds like a cop-out. That sounds like an excuse. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or ideas on what's actually going on when a teacher looks at a room full of students and says, oh, they're unmotivated or they're lazy. Yeah, I think what happens often is students are motivated by different things than the teacher is. And I think one of the big challenges for a teacher is to figure out what motivates my students. That's where one of the things is I do have an advantage because I teach at a, a small environmental college. There's a critical mass of students at my college who care passionately about environmental issues. I, I already know, know that even before I meet them, even before I get a whole group of first-year students. I know that there will be a good chunk of them who care passionately about you know, hydrofracking and climate change and all kinds of environmental issues. So immediately I have that hook. So I think it's a challenge, but also, in, in, like where I work, it depends on which group of students I get. If I get a group of students and a lot of them are landscape architects, I know that environmental issues might not be the hook. But I've taught landscape architects long enough to know that I have to start talking about, you know, the design of a city, that design issues get them excited. So I think, and, and I think that's why it takes a while if you're, if you're new to a college or a group of students, it takes a while to figure out what motivates these students. How can I get them interested and engaged and excited? Because once you get them engaged, then the, the rest is easy. You just kind of step out of their way and, and, and let, them, let them learn. But that, I think it's, it's one of the keys to, to having a successful classroom experience is just figuring out what's the hook with these students. Um, it's hard, and I think in this time when we keep raising, you know, student enrollment and in, in class sections, it's much harder because it can be very individual. Um, if you have 15 students, you have time to think of what motivates each of these 15 students. And you can have like a half-hour conference with each student. You've got, you know, 80, 90 students. It's much, much more difficult. So that's why... Uh, I am always like pushing to keep down class enrollments for writing classes mm -hmm. and to keep down teaching loads for teachers um, because I think teaching is very individual. Yeah, and, and I, was, I was thinking, you know, what happens whenever you get your public institutions that aren't targeted for you know, environmental sciences and forestry or you get your, your more general schools or your community colleges where there isn't that targeted approach to admissions where right. you've got a much broader, much more diverse group of students, you know, how do you find, and, and I think, I guess you just spoke to it. It said that there's, it just takes time. You know, I was about to say, right. how do you find what motivates these students and how do you find those individualized interests? But I guess there's no way to do that without just spending time with them and getting them to think about it and staying out of their way for a bit while they figure themselves out. Yeah. I mean, there's no shortcut. I, I feel like there, there needs to be a relationship between teacher and student. Right. And, and you have to get to know pretty much not just the body of students, but sort of each individual student. Um, like if I have a student who I know is big into computer games, right, I will talk to the student about that. Um, but that's to me, and, and, and it's also tough in a you know, 15 week semester. You've got what about a week, a week or two to really sort of get to know them. And then you've got to take off with the semester. So, again, that, that condensed time. Again, where I have an advantage, I teach at a small school. So when I teach a second semester course, I already know probably half the students in the class. And so getting repeat students, students that I already have a relationship with, students that I already know what motivates them, that 
that again is a big help for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you said a second ago um, that if you've got a 15 week semester, um, you've got very little time because you know, after a couple of weeks, then you really have to get into it. What do you do during those first couple of weeks? If you're just, cause what I heard from you, it sounds like you're just getting to know your students. You're not actually working on course content. Uh, well, they're reading. Right. So they're reading and we're getting into discussions every day. So that's course content. But we do things like even the first day of class in one of the things I do, because I know I'm going to be using some, you know, computer stuff in the class. Uh, And this this exercise takes about 10 minutes. I'll say to them, okay, let's figure out how to arrange ourselves from the most technologically proficient person to the person who knows the least about computers. And so we all stand up and we have to ask each other's questions. Have you ever built a website? Uh, are you on Twitter? Uh, you know, questions like that. And so we get into this discussion and we arrange ourselves in a circle with the sort of the, the computer geek at one end and the person who is on Facebook and nothing else on the other end. And that just begins those conversations. And at least at the end of that, I know, okay, I know how many people in this room have actually built a website before, right? And in and we've had these discussions with each other. And I'll say to them, well, look at each other because see these people over here on my right, ask them for help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so those kinds of exercises where they're actually up and moving around talking to each other. Um, the other way, uh, one of the things I did this year as I was sort of getting to know each other is when I take attendance, I ask a question. And so instead of me saying the name and they say here, they have to answer the question. Uh and I actually didn't had do a good job coming up with good questions, but I had students who did. So after about this second day, they took over the questions. I'd get to class and they'd be like, the question today is, what is your animal totem? And I'd be like, what? And they'd be like, oh, what's your animal totem? And so, so, so when I took attendance and said their name, and so this is, class hasn't even started yet, right? Mm-hmm. This is a couple minutes before class. They would have to chime in with their animal totem and would get into these discussions. So often even the, the 10 minutes before class starts, is always a really good time for conversations where we, we get into these like crazy conversations. Um, but it really helps me get to know them. Like the animal totem question, I realize a lot of, a lot of students are really passionate about animals and have real specific reasons um, for why they are. Hmm. So like any opportunity like, you know, that I can have to sort of get into this kind of thing. And whenever you had the students sort by um, familiarity with technology and such, I assume that you had them come up with the questions. You just said, all right, we're going to sort ourselves, and you let them figure it out from there? That was it. I said, we're going to sort ourselves, go, and Mm -hmm. then let them ask each other and and figure that out. Yeah. Cool. Um, Most of the time, I mean, with my students, that's my – I say, hey, as I was driving to work, I had this idea. What do you think? And they're like, cool, and then we go do it. That's pretty much how it works. Um, <laughs> Lesson planning on the highway. <laughs> right. That's the best. Well, because always, like, yeah, I plan stuff out, you know, way before the course begins. But then when I get the actual real students in the classroom, it always changes because, you know, it, you know, say I have a student who plays the bagpipes. We're like, let's figure out how we can do something with that. I don't know. Or, you know, I have a student who, one year I had a student who was really into interpretive dance. Mm-hmm. So I said to her, cool, you want to teach one of our classes? And so she did. <laughs> she mm-hmm. she actually got us all doing interpretive dance. Um, so it's always very exciting, I think, for me, the first day of class to find out, ooh, what, what kind of what cool talents do my students have this year? So it sounds to me like you treat the, the entire semester as an opportunity to uncover what your students have brought with them. Oh, I like that. That's a good way of saying it. Um, 
Yeah, it's a, so it's a process of discovery. Mm-hmm. And it's not just me uncovering, but they do it with each other. Mm-hmm. So one of, one of the other things I do is for every class, they have what used to always be a reading in a book, but it's now the days sometimes it might be a TED Talk or something on YouTube or something on the Internet, but, but some sort of assignment, something they're going to read or look at or listen to and digest. And then they have to write what I call a short paper. So it's an informal paper, one page. I do make them print it out. Uh, and they come to class bringing those papers with them. And so in the 10 minutes before class even begins, we start exchanging papers. And the rule is you read someone's paper and you can write on it. You sign your name at the bottom to say you've read it. So by the time class actually starts, we're already reading each other's papers. And we take maybe the first five, 10 minutes of class doing that. And that's, that's an opportunity for students to sort of contribute to the class discussion before class even begins. And I think it's especially important for my introverted students that they're really comfortable writing their thoughts on a piece mm-hmm. of paper that everyone's going to pass around and read, mm-hmm. whereas they might not be as likely to just jump right into a class discussion. Mm-hmm. So they, that way they contribute right at the very beginning of class. And then those short papers help us get to know each other because you know, we're all reading each other's papers. Um, and it also helps shape the classroom discussion. Janine's short papers work well as a way for her students to get to know each other and for in-class conversations to flow from student interests. She carries this same approach into other situations as well. I talked about getting to know my students in the classroom. Another important thing that I do is I also get to know them outside the classroom. Mm-hmm. So every Wednesday morning I have breakfast in the, in the cafe on campus with a colleague uh, who has a similar teaching style to me, even though he's a scientist. And students know that they are always welcome to join us for breakfast. And most Wednesday mornings, you know, we have a whole table full and we get into all kinds of really interesting discussions. And if students join the table who haven't had me before as a class, they usually end up signing up and taking a class with me. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of open conversation, getting to know students informally, where we get in, we get into crazy, crazy debates about any kind of topic. I think that's important. It spills over into the classroom. So I, I think as a teacher, I've always tried to really get to know my students outside the classroom. And I'm, because I'm in a small classroom, a small campus, that really works. As though getting to know her students that personally and thoroughly wasn't enough, Janine tries to work with others to have their classes join forces, getting to know other groups of students from around the world. I'm always looking for colleagues who want to sort of collaborate with my students on different things, especially because for my students, the whole point of of putting work online is to reach other people. Like we don't use Twitter to talk to each other because we can do that in the classroom. We use Twitter to talk to other people. So particularly for if my students hold a Twitter chat, we want to invite other classes. Um, If we build websites, we want other students, other people, other places reading them. Um, so we've done, uh, we've had a couple things. Uh, I have a colleague, uh, Bernardo Trejos in Taiwan, and his students, his students take courses in, let me see if I can get this right, ecotourism. And they talk about, you know, t- how tourism can be sustainable and things like that. And so there have been times when we've sort of invited them to a Twitter chat or have done an interactive activity with them. Um, Pete Warbell's students in Georgia, his students, my students, hosted a game of Twitter versus Zombies. So they actually built the game. They were on the rules committee together. They 
we bulk them into groups and they, they get into Google Docs and that's how they exchange things. That was a pretty intense week. We would have uh, Google Chats with Pete and I would be on there with a couple of his students, a couple of my students. That And that, I find, that's the part the students like the best is when they can be sort of in a, like a Google Hangout and actually the video chat with students who are in another place. I'd like to do more of that. Uh, because it's worked for certain elements, but I've not yet found a situation where I could do a whole course-long collaboration mm -hmm. with another group of students. That's my goal. Um, that hasn't happened yet. It's just worked for some elements, not all of them. So that's something I, I'm still thinking through. You can hear the sense of playful experimentation in her tone, right? Janine constantly works to rethink her approach to class, trying new things, improving on old ones, and asking her students what did and didn't work in the semester. And that's the crux. When Janine tries something in her classes, she has no guarantees that it will work, only the hope that it might. And that's her entire approach to designing a course. I brought up that idea with her to get her to say more about it. I do want to talk a bit about the, the things that just might work concept. Um, you, oh, you mean instead of best practices? <laughs> yes, yeah, because you, you wrote a, an article for hybrid pedagogy where you basically took to task the phrase best practices. Um, and, uh, I mean, you start off by talking about colleagues who invoke the phrase best practices. Um, you know, not just use it, but invoke it, because boy, is it not weighted. Throughout the piece, you present an argument that best practices is too prescriptive and kind of following from everything you've been saying so far about your classes, you want to be responsive to the students that you have. And so if you, if you set out to follow this list of best practices that other people have said are the right way to do things, what if that's not appropriate for your students? Or what if that's not taking into consideration the situation that you're working within? And so you've created this idea of things that just might work which sounds terrifying because it's got that just might phrase in there. And, and I kind of wonder, you know, how, how do we encourage teachers to take that concept seriously? How, how do we get people to, to say things that just might work? Sure. Let me give that a shot because of that risk of failure. Yeah, you're right. Teaching that way means that as a teacher, you're pretty vulnerable. I mean, you know that you might do something and it's not going to work. That happens to me all the time, and I've been teaching, what, for like 35 years or something. But that's because I'm always changing my teaching methods. Um, so I think you have to sort of embrace that vulnerability and be willing to say to students, okay, hey, that didn't work. Let's sit down and talk about it, and how can we do that better next time? Because mm -hmm. I always treat my students as, well, they're kind of co-teaching the course with me. So if I come up with an idea and it doesn't work, then, hey, they're going to help me fix it and change it and, and make it so that it's something that can work. Um, but the other thing, too, is when I come up with an idea that's new, or I usually I didn't come up with it, I read it somewhere on the Internet, mm -hmm. um, I, come to, I bring it to class and I say to the students, what do you think? Do you think this could work? And I get their input. But I, so I do not, don't just get their input, but, of course, then I get their buy-in because then they become sort of co-teachers and they care about it working. And often they have good ideas of how to change things to make them work. Mm -hmm. Like that simple thing with the taking attendance and asking a question. I thought, oh, that's a cool idea. I read it. Who knows where I read it? Somewhere on the Internet. And I didn't come up with good questions. My students made it work because they were like, no, no, Janine, that's a lame question. Here, I've got a better question. Mm -hmm. um, where's the weirdest place you ever woke up? You know, things like that. <laughs> right, right. I, I had one student in particular last uh, last semester who just came up with the best questions. 
That one, that one would only come from college students. That's fantastic. <laughs> right, exactly. My <laughs> questions, my questions were like, "What's your favorite color?" And they were like, "What?" You know, that's a boring question. We got better questions. Okay, good. You guys go with it. Yep. So I think, I think the way around the, and I think that's part of my problem with best practices. They often seem things that are handed down by administrators and used almost as weapons. Here's how you have to do it. Um, they come from outside the classroom. Whereas when I say, well, I bring to class things that just might work, what I have to do is invite my students into that conversation. Hey, what do you think? Do you think this guy's, what do you think? Is this going to work? And often they're thinking about it, and sometimes they say no. They're like, nope, that's never going to work, and I don't do it. But more often they say, well, how about we change it and do it this way? Or, hey, yeah, we're, gonna, we're willing to give it a try. One semester, after she had seen techniques used in MOOCs and thought some of them would be fun to bring into her on-ground classes, she tried to MOOCify her courses by adding many of those components to her classes simultaneously. The first time I sort of MOOCified my class and brought in all these online elements, at the very beginning of the semester, I said, hey, that's, here's my idea. What do you think? Is, do you think it's going to work? And I had put the whole syllabus into a Google Doc so that they could go in and put comments and things. And they were like, no, yeah, let's give it a try. And then at the end of the semester, we sat down and, and we looked at the things that didn't work. Uh, I had this crazy system where they were writing memos like a million times a week. And they were like, Janine, way too many memos next year. Cut that out. I'm like, yes, you're right. Getting rid of that for next year. So those conversations, I have them throughout the semester and especially at the end of the semester where they tell me this worked, keep it. This didn't work, get rid of it. And I've done that my whole teaching career. I mean, my students are responsible for saying, yes, we like that book. It worked. Keep it. Or, nope, that book, it didn't work. It was too long. It was too dense. You know, nobody read it. Get rid of it. And I think that's just a really important element of teaching. So uh, a part of me wants to, uh, to strain your humility a little bit and ask if you could give an example of something that just blew up in your face, something that didn't work. Because you're making this all sound so easy. Even even your example so far of things that didn't work are like, oh, yeah, nobody read that book. Oh, come on. <laughs> that's not a failure. That's <laughs> Why? Why? To me, that's a failure. Like, I, I expect every student to read everything. And they do, though. They, my, I have great students. I love my students. Um, they. So you want an example? Oh, gosh, something that really worked didn't work. I guess I'm looking for something like epic or cataclysmic or something like that to 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 show how, you know, if we try these things out, maybe something is going to go really wrong and that's actually okay. Or even oh, oh, they go really wrong and we learn from that. Oh, wait, I think I have one. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so when my students first started putting things online, I was so excited about it. I was like, we want the entire world to read our websites, to being a part of our Twitter chat. So I was always saying, invite everybody, put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, invite everyone. And that was always my like big mantra, invite everyone. We want everyone to see our stuff. So this was maybe a year, so about a year into this, um, we do these things, we call them convas. My students, we had long arguments about the name. The converse, conversation opportunities with Nipkin's virtual audience is what it stands for. But what they are, just Google Docs. When my students come up with a topic, we invite everyone to participate, come in, add something to the document, like add a paragraph, add a sentence, change something around, and then sign your name at the bottom and say where you're from so we can see how many outside participants we have. 
And originally I thought it was going to read like an essay when I came up with the idea. And instead, my students have made it much more into a conversation. They think mm -hmm. it's disrespectful to edit someone else's ideas. So instead they say, just add your idea in a different color. So these canvas have been something we've done almost every semester for, for a, a couple years now. Um, and they're conversations. And we'll pick a topic. It might be, you know, the vision, a vision for environmental education or, or the other topic might be food, you know. A topic like that. So, and I'm always saying, invite everyone, invite everyone. So, <laughs> and my students, I mean, what, they're 18 years old, they you know, invite everyone. And I'm like, what, what could go wrong with that? So, one time, one of my students innocently put it on the 4chan board. <laughs> <laughs> and in his defense, he's like, but it was a literature board. And nothing, yeah. So anyhow, so, so that, so it's a Wednesday evening. I'm at home and I open up my, the, my, this Google doc to look and see what nice discussion my students might be having about environmental education. I think that was the topic. And oh my gosh, it was just, the, the Google Doc was just flashing with all kinds of like porn and nasty porn images and, and insults and, and it was just, I was like, oh my God. And for me, it was like, as if like a group of angry people had come bursting into the classroom. It, it was, it felt like an attack, like a violation. I was like horrified. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. So, so in my panic, the first thing I do is send an email to all my students telling them not to go look at the Google Doc. <laughs> because of course that works. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, oh wait, no. What I need to do is go into the permissions and shut it down, and 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 go back to an earlier, you know. So then I figured out, I shut down the, I, I shut it down and reverted to an earlier version. And then I thought, okay, this is okay. Maybe the problem is gone. So now I'll open it up again. I did that. In the meantime, I keep sending these emails to my students, <laughs> these panicked emails. And, and then, of course, I open it up and the whole thing starts happening again. Then it occurred to me I just needed to shut it down and, and open up a new link somewhere. And, you know, so, so, so I did that. But I was, like, horrified. Um, I got to class the next day, and my students thought it was hilarious. They were like, this is great, Janine. We got, like, like a dozen panicked emails from you. Have you never been on the Internet? Don't you know this is how things are on the Internet? And, and so they were like, it's about time. You know, we knew you were kind of innocent. It's about time you figured this out, that there are a lot of nasty people on the Internet. So, yeah, they just thought it was, like, a good learning experience for me. But... Yeah, so now I don't say share it everywhere. I'm like, okay, share in appropriate places. Everywhere but 4chan, for the oh, love God, of God, everywhere was... but 4chan. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, that was quite the experience. Um, yeah, I have to say I had my college-age son also thought it was funny. He was in the living room while I was doing this pan in panic mode. He's like, Mom, how do you not know that that stuff happens on the Internet? So, yeah. So that, that was quite the learning experience. So something tells me that your students were a lot more empowered and self-confident after that particular moment where, where they saw you learning something that they took for granted and, and they watched you as you figured it out. Yeah, I, that happens a lot, though. As I tell them, when I, w I went to college and grad school using a typewriter, right? I'm older than I'm 54. So th there's going to be. In, in most ways, they will be more technologically proficient than I am, mm -hmm. most of the time. And, and well, that's one of the reasons we do, in, at the beginning, we, we get into a circle to see who in the class has the best skills, because I have to lean on them. Um, and I'm always saying, huh, uh, I'm not sure about this. Ask someone else in the class. You know, 
And I would say that, you know, in real life, when you get a job, your, your, your supervisor doesn't know everything, right? What do you do? You ask your friends, you Google it, you, you, you figure it out, mm -hmm. right? So I expect, I expect my students to contribute, and I absolutely do not expect to be the most technologically proficient person in the room, because usually I'm not. Um, my students are science students. They're pretty good with technology. Since I'm in America, and it's 2016, and we're on the subject of disasters, let's talk about politics, shall we? Remember those short papers Janine talked about earlier? They're the ones her students write before coming to class, and they share and discuss them before class really gets started. Those papers are designed to be rather open-ended, allowing for her students to set the direction of the conversation based on what's on their minds. And students know that in the short papers, they can bring up ideas. Like, I think, you know, and with my students' stories, I think we need a class where we go outside. You know, that's mm -hmm. usually a big one. But um, they bring in current events. Like this fall, there's no way the, uh, you know, politics are not going to come into class right. discussions, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's going to happen. Um, but they do it in a really intelligent, articulate way. So, Okay, um, so, so if, if politics are going to be in your class this semester... Um, or this coming fall. In the fall. They would be if I was teaching right now, but I'm on sabbatical. Right, so. right. Um, with, with politics sneaking into your class, you don't teach any political science course. No, no. So, <laughs> Not capable of it. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, my brain is screaming relevance here. I'm trying to figure out what your response is to people who would say, you know, but, but politics has no place in a literature or writing class. Why are you talking about these things? How do you then bring them back around into the the purpose of your course? So the course I teach in the fall is a writing course, and pretty much anything is relevant. Students choose their own topics. So if we get into a political discussion in class, they can choose that as their topic. And I usually have a few students who want to choose it as a topic. I mm -hmm. think it's a tough topic mm -hmm. uh, because I think you you – you, you need to really know what you're talking about. But I always have a couple of students who would choose that because the students read each other's papers. So when they write a paper, they know that their goal is to educate the rest of the class. So if I'm a student who feels passionately about Bernie Sanders, for example, and I really want to educate the rest of the class, I'm going to spend a lot of time and effort to write a really solid paper on that topic. Um, and then, of course, in, in some of my courses, we also, the things we write, we put them on the internet. So we're not just educating each other. We're educating, you know, theoretically the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so that's particularly in the hybrid course I teach in the spring. My students pick topics and they build websites and they um, put things on YouTube and they have Twitter chats. And, and so any job, politics certainly relevant, um, especially with environmental issues. So they can choose, they get to choose their topics. Um, so, I don't know, it, it, it'd be hard for me to think of anything that would not be relevant when we're talking about writing, reading, and thinking. Having students choose topics that interest them, rather than topics defined by the instructor, curriculum, or textbook, allows Janine's teaching to respond to the experiences of her students and ensures relevance. Not relevance to a course outcome or relevance to a theme, but relevance to her students' lives and current thinking. By empowering students to choose what they are passionate about, what they want to achieve for the semester, what they will discuss in class, and how they will do various assignments, Janine ensures that her students get practical experience working with material that is personally engaging, on projects that are inherently purposeful. Her approach to teaching is quintessentially responsive, 
requiring students to set the direction and tone of her classes. It also creates personal buy-in from her students, allowing them to achieve a lot in a single semester. We invite other people because we want them to come and learn. And my students, especially when I have students who are juniors and seniors, they, you know, they've been taking courses for a couple of years about environmental issues. So they bring in a lot of what they learn in the other classes. And our, my idea is that, like, we want to share this with the world. So that's, I think, where, where I, I think of it as a, a MOOC-like element. So you're bringing in the MOOC elements to run a MOOC, not to not to operate your class as though your students are taking a MOOC. Right, they're right. They're running the My students are running the MOOC. They're not taking it. They're creating the MOOC. I know. I'm just thinking, yeah. I mean, sort of like, yes, we are teaching the rest of the world. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's, that is always our attitude. Okay. So, yeah. so you're doing in-class learning, you're doing local community service learning, and you're doing, you're hosting an open online course in 15 weeks. Yeah. Whew. Yeah, when you put it that way, it sounds ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> but you make it work. I don't know. Well, how, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for setting a high bar? You've been tuned to Hybrid Pod, a production of Digital Pedagogy Lab. Just because the show is over doesn't mean the conversation ends. Janine and I are each accessible through Twitter, and so is the show itself. So along those lines, at Hybrid Pod and at Chris underscore friend, would like to thank at writing as Joe, that's J-O-E, for talking with me for this episode. To hear more episodes, you can subscribe to HybridPod in your favorite podcast listing service. But the best place to go is our home on the web. Find us at hybridpod.audio, where you can hear all our episodes and add to the conversation online. That's hybridpod.audio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>